Feeling disconnected is not a unique feeling, but it can be extremely harmful to us. Research continues to show that the most significant factor to our longevity, mental health, disease prevention and happiness is in fact our relationships. And yet often the focus in health, be it physical or mental health, continues to largely be on diet, exercise, alcohol, suicide prevention. Given this is the case, I'm intrigued that the how-to of how to form meaningful, satisfying and positively impactful relationships hasn't been given more airtime, especially in our platonic relationships, our friendships. This is a topic that deserves centre stage well beyond the impact of COVID-19 on loneliness. It's a topic that requires active thought, reflection and action across our lifespan. I'm Jackie Maguire, and this is my podcast, Mind Brew. I'm a clinical psychologist with a passion for science communication. What does that mean? It means I not so secretly love researching psychological studies, translating them into easy to understand concepts, and providing practical strategies to optimize personal well being, work, and relationships. Put simply, Mind Brew has been created to help people live the good life. To help me explore the whys and how-tos of meaningful platonic connection, there was really only one woman I wanted to speak to, Shasta Nelson. Shasta Nelson is a keynote speaker, author, and leading expert on friendship and healthy relationships at work. Filled with scientific data, real-world research, and fascinating case studies, she really does bring the science of relationships to life. Shasta is the author of three best-selling books, The Business of Friendship, Making the Most of the Relationships Where We Spend the Most of Our Time, Friendships Don't Just Happen, and Friendimacy, How to Deepen Friendships for Lifelong Health and Happiness. As quoted, Shasta Nelson is rapidly becoming to friendship what Brene Brown is to courage, and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome her to the Mindbrew podcast. Shasta, thank you so much for joining me and for joining the Mind Brew podcast. It's so lovely to have you with us down here in New Zealand um, and to have your expertise, especially in this you know, time of life that is just, from a social connection point of view, so bizarre. Oh, my privilege to be here. Thank you so much for talking about this subject. It feels, it always feels important, but feels way more important right now. Yeah, do- doesn't it just? And, you know, for, for those listeners that don't know you you're you're a guru in this space you've written three books on friendship and connection and the importance of really depth and intimacy to our relationships um, and why that's so important in a world that perhaps is becoming uh, more disconnected even though superficially we might look like we've got the most connections we've ever had that's exactly how I say it. I'm like, we're more connected than ever, and yet we feel more disconnected. We know more people than we've ever known before, and yet we feel less known. And our loneliness nowadays is not because of lack of interaction. Uh, you know, we often have the stereotype of somebody who's lonely as like having no social life or having no social skills or not having any friends. And the truth of the matter is it's not for lack of interaction that we're lonely. It's for lack of intimacy that most of us are lonely. And so, yeah, your point is so well made. Like many of us have have friends, uh, are know a ton of people and are connected and yet still have that hunger where we're just like, yeah, but does anyone really know me? And do I have people I could really confide in? And do I feel like there's people who get me? And do I feel comfortable with some people? Like, do I just feel like I have that, that familiarity and where we know each other and I don't have to filter everything in my, that I'm saying? And, you know, it's like having a depth and a safety and a familiarity is what we're, many of us are craving in our relationships. And a comfortableness, right? Because it's like, it's a lot of effort and it's hard work when you're with so many people all the time that you only know at a surface level. You really have to think hard and be on top of your game and that can be exhausting. 
Yeah, for sure. I, there was one quote I read once years ago. I should try to find who I could attribute it to, but it said, the greatest intimacy is having the kind of friend that you can be talking on the phone and be like, why do I have three jars of pickles in my fridge? You know, it's like the friends that you can just talk about, quote, nothing with, you know, like we know who we can call if we need this favor, or if we need to have our kids get up and do a play date. And, you know, we, we have people, but yeah, just the people that you can talk about the nothing with is like a whole being is like a whole nother level of intimacy. So Shasta, one of the things that really strikes me about your work is that you use the word intimacy a lot. And I think for many people, Perhaps they only attribute that word to romantic relationships, but you're not speaking about romantic relationships when you're talking about intimacy in terms of friendship. So I'm, I'm wondering whether you could kind of give us the, back, the background to how that word became so entwined in your work. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. I should have clarified that from the beginning because for years I was on this campaign, like we all need more intimacy in our lives. And I kept watching everyone's eyes like, is she talking about sex? <laughs> I was like, no. And, and we have those so synonymous, right? And I kept being like the platonic intimacy, not romantic intimacy. But you're right. We just so equate it with this sense of a romantic relationship. And I, so I actually coined a word. My second book title is Frentimacy and coined that word in order to make a new folder in our heads. The one that says we do need, I mean, that is what we crave is that, is that familiarity and that, that intimacy that comes with like knowing that person's there for me and that it's safe and that it's enjoyable and we know each other and more of us need that in the, in more than just one relationship in our lives. We need that. We crave that in several relationships and to have that, that depth matters. So my definition of frentimacy uh, is where you both feel seen in a safe and satisfying way. And so we know what it feels like to not feel seen. We know what it feels like to walk away from a dinner or from a party and be like, yeah, but nobody even asked me about my life or they don't even know about this going on or, or, or we, I have to conform. You know, when we think about the workplace, a lot of people don't feel like they can be themselves. We have to like fit a certain image. So we know what it's like to not feel seen. And, uh, and we also know what it's like to open up to a friend or open up to somebody and be vulnerable, but then feel judged afterward or feel like we're worried about, feel insecure about what are they thinking and um, are they, you know, now are they thinking less of me? And so to be, actually feel seen and to know that it feels safe and to know that you feel good for having been seen, like you feel more pleasant feelings, you feel more love, more acceptance, more pride, more insp more inspired. And that's what we want. That's what all of us crave. Like we are scared of it, but really that's what we want in more of our relationships. There's so, there's so many things I want to cover in this podcast and I've actually written a plan, which people that know me will laugh because I normally am a wing it girl, but I've got a plan <laughs> for today. But following up on that thread, why do you think we're scared of it? Mm. I think we're scared of it. If, it, if I were to boil it all down uh, to the fear of rejection, the fear of not being enough, the fear of like, we want to be loved. And so the idea of not being loved or not being accepted is so terrifying. Uh, there's some really powerful research out there that shows that no matter how healthy we are, every single one of us walks into a room and Basically, without even knowing it, we're looking, we're scanning the room and asking, do I fit in here? Without even like being conscious of it, like, am I the oldest one here? Am I the youngest one here? Am I the, the you know, am I the only one with kids here? Am I the only one who's single here? Like we're like walking in and we're constantly trying to find and ask the question, do I fit in? Am I accepted? And they say that no matter how healthy we are, no matter what personality we have, like even if we're not shy, even if we call ourselves uh, extrovert we too walk in and are tempted to feel uh, like we don't fit in, like we don't belong. Uh, the only difference is that for those of us who get healthier and become more aware of that, our, our hope is that we don't react out of that feeling of insecurity. And it's been one of the most empowering things for me to realize when I walk into a room everybody else is feeling that same feeling. Like everybody here is asking the same question. Like, 
do, will you like me? And rather than me walk around asking everybody else to prove that they like me, what if it looks like if I walk around and just tell everyone I, I approve of them, you know, in whatever words, with a smile or with, uh, oh, that outfit looks great, or I'm so glad you're here, or so nice to meet you, um, you know, just realizing how much we all want to belong. And as neuroscientists and biologists are studying, uh, you know, our bodies even more and more, it's been really fascinating to watch what neuroscience is showing in the last couple of years around how much we need to feel connected, that if we feel disconnected, it lights up the same part of our brain as if we get kicked in the stomach. Like it's a physical pain center that says something's wrong. This is not okay. We are meant to be connected, you know, in our biology. Uh, I could go down, I could talk for a whole hour on just the health benefits of relationships because our biology is so wired in order to function when we feel supported that to go through life not feeling connected and supported does more damage on our health than if we smoke 15 cigarettes a day. It's twice as harmful as being obese. It does the equivalent damage on our body as if we were lifelong alcoholics. It's worse than if we don't eat right. It's worse than if we don't exercise. It's worse than if we live in a polluted city. So um, when we look at what really, really matters to our health, being supported and connected is what puts our body into repair mode and what puts our body into like healing mode and peace. And so you can drink all the green smoothies you want and run on the treadmill. But if you don't feel connected, um, that's the thing that actually does is like invigorates our body more than anything else. So it really, really matters. And that's something I speak about lots is this kind of evolutionary need and evolutionary drive to be part of yeah. the tribe. Because back in the day, if you weren't part of the tribe, you were raw meat and mm-hmm. you were you were <laughs> absolutely from a physical threat perspective, uh, you know, in, in the spotlight. And, yeah. and that really hasn't left us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and absolutely that feeling of being alone, whether mm-hmm. you're alone or not physically, that perception mm-hmm. of being alone uh, mm-hmm. to your body is physically threatening. Um, it is. <laughs> and so it pa- is. part of my pla- plan, Shasta, was to say... <laughs> I'll follow your plan. I'll follow your plan. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we can, we can free spirit it. That's good. But was to have this conversation on, okay, so if we have this absolute physical need for connection, and we've got the most access that we've ever had before, Mm. Mm. why are our loneliness numbers so high? Mm. And just to give you a New Zealand context, because I know you have American stats, but Mm -hmm. here there are some some new uh, stats around loneliness that have come out from COVID-19, which I'm sure you have seen there, and and we have been far less impacted by lockdowns and and restrictions than the Mm -hmm. States. But, Mm -hmm. you know, 40% of New Zealanders were feeling isolated and, and lonely during lockdown. And our, our young people were actually the most at risk, yes. which they thought it would be the elderly, but it was actually yeah. the young'uns. Um, yeah. And that went from pre-lockdown or pre-COVID from about 5% of young people up to 20%. Mm. And it's now stabilised at about mm. 17%. So, you know, one in five of our young people are feeling lonely most of Mm. the time. And Mm. that's a lot of us. Yes. Yes. And those numbers are actually, unfortunately, pretty good (laughs) compared (laughs) to the UK and the United States. And yeah, I mean, this is what's unfortunate is how big of an issue this is. And just to help give some context to loneliness for everybody, because it's an emotion that we often have a lot of shame around or like think, oh, I've got friends, I can't be lonely. um, Or we just have a really hard time admitting it. Uh, Loneliness is our body's way of sending us a message that we have more capacity in our lives for more love. And it's similar to hunger. It's similar to uh, like, so when our hunger, when we have, when we feel hunger, it's saying our body needs food. When we feel thirsty, it's saying our body needs to drink. When we feel tired, it's saying our body needs to sleep. And when we feel lonely, it's telling us our body needs connection. And so there's no shame in any of that. And it's not feeling lonely that kills us. Uh, Just like feeling hungry doesn't kill us. What kills us is if we don't get access to the food and if we don't have, you know, if we don't eat nourishing food. Uh, So it's not being hungry. It's not getting that need met that is damaging. So being lonely, the most important thing we can do as emotionally intelligent human beings is get more familiar with that 
feeling and call it the right thing. Because if we don't, if we're ashamed to call it loneliness, we might call it boredom and then just go be busy. Or we might call it hunger and go eat food. And so it's really important that we actually go, huh, I actually think that's me craving more connection. And because then when we name it the right thing, we can then do the right thing to get that need met. And when you're talking about these numbers, I think one of the things that's really important to point out is similar to food hunger, you know, here um, we talk about here in the States that you have a certain percentage of people who are well, hopefully not starving of hunger, but unfortunately, yes, we have a huge number here who have food insecurity, we would call it. And so a larger number of people who do have food, they're not dying from lack of no food, but they don't have, they don't know, they don't always know they're going to have the next meal. They don't have easy access to food. They don't have grocery stores near them. They have to go stand in line to get the food. And so when we're talking about loneliness, it's a range and it's a spectrum. And so we're seeing that here in the States, we have about 20% of people who we'd say are starving for loneliness, like starving loneliness. Like they, they don't, they are not getting enough access to people at all. But then we have 61% of us who I would call in the similar category of food scarcity or food insecurity, which is 61% of people feel lonely on a regular basis. And so it doesn't mean they have no needs being met, but they are not getting most of their needs met and they're feeling lonely. Yeah. So that's a big chunk of us, you know, collectively. So what we need to do is really remove the shame from it. And each of us, you know, all of your listeners listening, get more familiar with like asking yourself on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the most fulfilled, the most satisfied with my relationships. Like where would I rate myself in my relationships right now? With one being I'm not like I'm I'm not getting any any needs met and 10 is like I'm I've got every need met. I've got the right quantity of friends. I have the right depth of those friendships. Like I just feel so fulfilled with my family, with my work colleagues like 10. And all of us need to do a better job of on a regular basis asking ourselves like what number would I give myself? And then the follow-up question to that is like okay, I gave myself a 6. Uh what what what's one thing that would help move that number up to a seven, you know, what's one thing that comes into my mind that would increase that number for me to help me get that need met. And that's really what all of us need to do a much, much, much better job of doing because we haven't been taught to do this. We haven't been taught to even pay attention to that, that message our body Mm. is trying to send us. Two questions, Shasta, in terms of that shame around uh, labeling, admitting, confronting the fact you're lonely, is there research on what's behind the shame, all the all the key drivers that prevent us or barrier us from kind of yeah. acknowledging that to ourselves? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's a really beautiful question, Jackie. And I think it comes from the fact like we know intuitively how much being in relationship matters to us and to our bodies. And so it's almost like this great shame to admit that we don't have that need being met. And, and, we, and worse than not having food, to say we don't feel like, I think we've somehow mistakenly said that if I feel lonely, that means nobody likes me. And it feels like, a, I feel like there's something wrong with me, you know, and we associate it with something that's like, I have no friends. And that just seems like such a hard thing to want to admit. Um, there's just a lot of shame. And I, you know, Matthew Lieberman is a neuroscientist and he says, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs had it upside down. He said relationships, when we look at the neuroscience, relationships are actually the most the fundamental thing because every, as a baby, uh, we can't get any of those other needs met without being in relationship. Like it's relationship that gets all those other needs met for us, you know? And so everything's born out of relationship for us from the very, very beginning. So I think, I think it's kind of our body's way of knowing how much it matters. But then we haven't as a culture as a world, we really don't, you know, most of us have never taken a class on friendship. Most of us have never read a book on friendship. Most of us just feel like we're supposed to intuitively know how to do this. And that if we don't, there's something wrong with us. And, um, and it's really taking a big, big toll. It's breaking a lot of, a lot of bodies and a lot of hearts and a lot of minds. That was my wonder whether at the core of that was potentially a core belief around I'm flawed. If I'm mm-hmm. lonely, perhaps mm-hmm. that means I'm flawed and that's a really scary thought mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. To, to process or to even consider. And yeah. therefore, I'm going to get my defense mechanisms up and not even go there. Was my wonder whether yeah. that kind of lies at the heart. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. 
of that and and also I suppose the difference between friendship and, and romantic relationships or your primary attachment relationships you said at the very start friendimacy is about both people being seen but often when we're talking about attachment uh, whether that be with our primary carer or our uh, spouse or our or our main relationship is is that we're seen by the other person it isn't that re- reciprocity around being seen so there's a difference in friendship compared to other relationships which we may not have uh, learnt or may not, you know, there hasn't been as much discussion yeah, around for that. Sh- for sure. And I think you've nailed it on the head is that that's one of the things that really drove me into this field 12 years ago was um, I was coaching different women through different things. And I just kind of kept asking them like, who are your friends? Who's supporting you through this? And I kept hearing this common theme of these impressive women who to a to a one of them just was like, well, I don't really talk about these things with my friends or, well, I moved a couple of years ago and kind of lost touch with those friends that really haven't, you know, built these friendships. Or I had kids a few years ago and just don't really kind of lost touch, like, you know, just over and over and over. I kept hearing this common story. And, um, and I thought it was really interesting that as a culture, when you start looking for resources for what could help some of us make friends at the time, it was like we were obsessed with parent-child relationships and with romantic relationships. Like there's thousands of books on those subjects and like thousands of coaches and and like we are so obsessed with like getting married and having kids. And you know, for women historically, those have been where we get our identity. Um, and yet what's really interesting is that historically also, those aren't the relationships that tend to do that much, who who tend to improve our health and happiness. There's a lot of studies that show the way we have parented and the way we've done marriage in the past, and those numbers are changing, has actually created more depression and hurt our health and uh, made us unhappy. And so it's not a guarantee that those relationships we've chased, and it's one of the worst things to, I mean, you can be lonely and married, you know, and that's almost the worst loneliness than than feeling alone and lonely, um, you know, is to be in relationship with people or to be in your family or to be in a party. And we all know that feeling of like, just because you're with people or in relationship doesn't mean you feel seen. And so your point is well made. And we do for our kids, we are often the ones helping see them in safe and satisfying ways, but that's not something that's reciprocated. And a lot of us who are women are have been raised and conditioned to be the good listener, to be the good friend, to be the advice giver, to be to be the one who's seeing other people. So a lot of us are in caretaking situations, we're in professions as therapists and nurses and you know serving people. Yeah, we do it for other people all day long, and yet we can still get to the end of the day and say, um, yeah. I I need somebody doing that for me. It's interesting. This conversation uh, is is jogging me back to my wedding day and my vows, which I wrote for my husband, which was, mm. you know, I can't be your everyone, and and actually, I don't want to be your everyone. I want you to have a life outside of me, mm. and mm. that's you know, and and that was a really important point for me to make is that Mm. I still want you to invest in your friends. I still want you to invest in your hobbies and I'll be a part of your life, but not your whole life. And I think that is a, um, that wasn't the, they were much more beautiful words than that, but that was the sentiment. Um, I love it. (laughs) But I think, I think that's also a shift in thinking from traditional sense that you just have to be one person's everything, which in fact is unhealthy and, and unrealistic. Shasta, I also wanted to ask you, and I think I know the answer, but I imagine people listening are wondering, so I'll ask it, which is, does personality have an impact on your, on, you know, your need for intimacy? If you're a introvert, does that mean you need less people in your life compared to if you're an extrovert? You know, has there been, a, you know, correlation studies around personality and connection? Yeah. Well, loneliness is certain, certainly subjective. And I think what we know from loneliness is it's something that really the most important thing we can do is say to somebody, the question is, do you feel fulfilled or do you wish you had more relationships? So I'm somebody who it's, I don't, I would never want to put numbers in front of anyone. You know, I think we can say that most people report being happiest if they have three to five close friends, but I really, I think it can be a little bit of a bell curve. I think we see some people needing more than that and having greater capacity. And we see other people feeling really, really good with just just a small, small number there. I will say that no matter our personality, 
we need to feel loved and supported. And so where we see personality show up is how we go about getting those needs met, like what we would like to do with the people that we're interacting with, like where we might, like how we, what examples we would give. And I can talk in a second about what kind of, you know, what we, what we judge a relationship on. And so certainly different personalities would do those things differently. And so I see a big difference in personality and how we show up in relationship, but the need is not different in that um, every single one of us needs to feel supported and connected. And I would argue that no matter how shy or how introverted we are, uh, to a person I have not talked to, and I've done a lot of classes for introverts and a lot of interviewing, um, and to a person, every one of them wishes they had a couple more close friends. You know, when you really, so just even having one really, really close friend leaves us feeling insecure a little bit. Like what if that friend moves? What if that friend is, has a baby and is busy? What if that friend, like, you know, I mean, there's just so many things that, that what if that friend just to your earlier point with your husband, that doesn't, doesn't match every single interest I have, you know, and like, I like just simply is good at this, but I'm missing this, you know I mean? So at the end of the day, we, um, we most, I've yet to meet somebody who doesn't really want a couple of really close friends. And so I think the bigger question is just each of us being learning to be more honest with our own ask, you know, and asking like, would I like some more? Would I like to be more connected? And if the answer is yes, then like, hallelujah, that you can hear that. And that's a really beautiful message. As your body saying it wants to love. That's a really, really beautiful thing. And so honoring that and then saying, okay, so what kind of love do I want in my life? Like what's, where am I missing it? What, what does it look like and starting to actually ask the questions about what could I do to invite more love in my life is really the the hope for that loneliness that would then pull us into that next question. So if we take your scale, you know, how seen, how connected, how loved do I feel? Uh, and we take that one to 10 as a much more helpful indicator rather than how many people am I connected to on yes. Facebook or how many people do I say hello to during the day? And we go, actually, a lot of us in this world are feeling lonely in some way or another. You label that an intimacy gap, which is we're not getting, we might have the numbers of people, but we don't have the depth. And I'm wondering if you could share with us your intimacy triangle, because that is something I have found as a psychologist really insightful around, okay, if we want to form more intimate relationships with friends, how the heck do we go about that as as grown-ups? Absolutely. Yeah, this was a huge helpful thing to me too when I was you know, early on researching all the social science around relationships. And I was getting myself kind of confused in the early stages, like over here, they're studying how many best friends do we have? And over here, they're studying what makes for a healthy marriage. And over here, they're studying what makes for a great team. And over here, they're studying why do you feel that closer to this person than that person? And so I just kept taking it all in and um, just finding every study I could. And I came to a place where I was like, you know what? There are three common denominators that every single one of these studies is talking about and measuring and monitoring and, and is with shares uh, in every definition that ends up being developed uh, around relationships. And so I created those three requirements of relationships in a triangle. And at the base of the, of the triangle is positivity and the two arms going up the triangle on one side is consistency and on one side is vulnerability. So positivity, consistency, and vulnerability. And we can, you know, take a moment to describe what each of those three things are, but really um, positivity is we want to have positive feelings. We, none of us are listening to this episode being like, you know what? I just want more friends in my life because I want to like feel more obligation, more I guilt. I more shit con- when I walk away <laughs> Exactly. <from laughs> exactly. Like, I just feel like I just want more small talk in my life. I want to be judged more. I mean, at the end of the day, every single one of us, when we think about choosing relationships, we want more pride and hope and love. And we want to feel um, affirmation and we want to feel uh, like we just want to have a good time. And so what all the pleasant emotions, and this may be where personality shows up, is that maybe some personalities, you know, just want to have fun and want to like just go and feel uh, exhilaration together, whereas some personalities might just prefer to feel, um, you know, much more empathy, you know, and so it will look different on us. You know, I think about love languages show up here. You know, some of us love physical touch. Others of us, uh, that would be an act of positivity. Others, gift giving. Others, um, acts of service and kindness. So this is where personality might express itself differently. But at the end of the day, all of us and the research shows our relationships, we need five 
positive feelings for every negative feeling to keep a relationship healthy. So there's going to be negative things. There's going to be disappointments. There's going to be unmet expectations. There's going to be annoyances. At the end of the day, we want to make sure that our bank account, if you will, in that relationship has five deposits for every withdrawal. Yeah, sure. So that's positivity. That one makes sense, right? It feels and, good. And I just want to clarify that I'm, you know, assuming Shasta, that that doesn't mean that every time you you have with your friend the conversation is positive or you don't talk about the challenges in your life but I'm imagining that positivity is how does the relationship leave you feeling nay yep you've so good such a good clarification yeah what I don't want is toxic positivity we're not trying to cheer each other up we're not trying to just be like everything's good so this is how we're both feeling at the end of it exactly what you said because that would erode that would erode the vulnerability right exactly exactly so good yeah okay so So clarification the base of the triangle positivity five to one is what we need for healthy relationships and it's yeah. how you feel in those interactions how you walk away from those interactions what it yes. what it does in terms of adding to your life yeah so if we're meeting brand new people those acts of positivity could be making eye contact could be one smiling at them could be one saying it's so nice to meet you could be one remembering their name could be one uh sharing a little joke could be one i mean it's, we're not talking like huge, massive things. We're just saying quantity matters. What we want that person doing when they walk away from, even if it's a five minute interaction is if they think warm thoughts about you, if they think you like them, if they walk away feeling liked, they are going to be more likely to want to do the other two requirements on the triangle, right? So if we have a good feeling, we're going to be more likely to want to then show up in consistent ways with each other. Obviously, if we've been friends forever, uh, positivity would look bigger. It would look like I would know exactly what gift to give you because we've been friends for 20 years that I would like, I would be wanting to do grand gestures and be expressing my love on Facebook and being like, I love this woman more than any other woman. She's like, so obviously positivity will look different based on the friendship and based on the personality. But at the end of the day, we're looking for positive emotions. So the more we feel that, the more we're going to be wanting to do the second requirement, which is consistent consistency, which is the pattern we put into place is really logging the hours together. It's making the time for each other. It's it's where we have shared experiences. It's where we have interactions. Um, this is where we kind of basically create the memories of our friendship and and get together and uh, text each other and phone call and Zoom and uh, spend time doing activities together. So every healthy relationship has to repeat those things. You know, you and I could have a wonderful conversation today and we could have tons of positivity and we we can have we could even have vulnerability. Uh, and yet if we, and that could be a fun, wonderful, friendly experience. But if we wanted to develop a friendship, we would need to repeat that over and over and over. And that's the consistent And so a lot of us, this is a big one that doesn't happen. You know, we meet amazing people. We all are meeting people on a regular basis, but for lack of simply not seeing them again frequently enough, that's why the friendship didn't take off. It wasn't that we couldn't be friends if put in a different container or if we actually saw each other regularly or lived next door to each other or worked at the same place or belonged to the same book club or something, but it's really for lack of consistency, but we, a lot of friendships never, never happen. That, that consistent interaction matters. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think as a child, you're in school, you go to dance class, you play on the rugby team. I know you have structure around you that means you see the same people all the time. Yeah. And I think when you become an adult, perhaps, and I want to talk about barriers later, but perhaps one of those barriers is people are busy and people Mm -hmm. have different things going on in their life. And, you know, unfortunately, I think busy's become a badge of honor. It's a crap badge of honor, but it's there on a lot of people. And it's, you know, I think that gets in the way. And so, you know, how do you, how do you get around, uh, how do you get around that barrier or in fact is it you know you your friendships change based on the stage of life you're at and based on who's around you at the time well it's it is true we we like to think that we are um you know, picking our friends. But the truth of the matter is, if you look back, the social science will show us that most of us became friends with the people that we just regularly saw. You're like twice as likely to become friends with the person who, like your sweet mate or your roommate. Uh, you're like, you know, and, and then for every percentage, every door, every apartment down that somebody lives, your chances go down exponentially of being friends. You know, I mean, it's like basically proximity matters. Uh, workplace, it's the same. Your chances, they can predict, they can come into a workplace setting and predict who you're going to be friends with. <laughs> basically around 
who's closest to you. Uh, and if somebody's on a different floor, uh, you're like your chances of being friends with them are go down exponentially, you know? And so that, that consistency when it's automatic for us is so helpful. And that's to your point, what made, that's what made friendship feel more automatic and easy when we were kids is that our consistency was automatic. And it's why work is the number one place we make friends as adults as whether we are comfortable with that or not. I just wrote a book on workplace friendships and it's funny how many people are like, well, is that appropriate? And do we really want that? And and it is the number. yes. (laughs) Yes, they would. A lot of research would. And I said, you know, but that is the number one place we make friends for that very reason, because we don't have to schedule them. We don't have to add them to a busy life. Like we're just paid to interact and see each other every day, which is such a great thing. And one of the hard things about working remote now for so many people, it's affecting our workplace relationships in that sense. But yeah, that consistency uh, is so, so important. And I think you're right. Before the pandemic, uh, consistency was often the very frequently the lowest of the three requirements for most people. When I'm speaking in front of an audience or at a at a event, I will ask you like which, and we'll ask all of you listening here in a moment after we get done talking about these three, which of these three requirements would make the biggest difference if you were to intentionally focus on increasing that one, which one would make the biggest difference to your relationships. And consistency was almost always the most popular answer because if you only see each other once a month, if you only get together every couple months, if you only see each other once a year, uh, it's going to not feel that meaningful. And you're going to get caught up in like the updating and just telling each other what's going on and not really talking about what's what, what matters, you know? And so the more frequent we are, the more we can really dip into like getting to the stuff that really matters. So is consistency the gateway to vulnerability? Yes, yes, yes. And it should be, it should be. I teach that those two should go up, ex, should go up incrementally together. And a lot, of, a lot of us want to just believe that if we just vomit vulnerability on somebody, that that should bond us. And I'm just like, no, no, no. Uh, we need to have vulnerability. <laughs> that might increase. make a very toxic friendship. <laughs> yes. Well, and sometimes we're so lonely that we just find somebody who's nice and we're just like, let me tell you everything. And it's like, no, that's not appropriate. Uh, so yes, consistency and vulnerability should incrementally like go up at the same time, because as we spend time together, so too should we feel like we're getting to know each other better. And then when we're getting to know each other better, which is vulnerability, then we need to feel good for having been vulnerable, which is positive emotion with people saying, oh, thanks for sharing, or oh, I totally get that, or I understand, and like, oh, good for you, or you know, whatever it leaves us feeling good. And then we want to repeat that experience. We want to spend more time with that person. And then as we spend time with each other, we get to know each other a little bit more. And you can see how consistency, vulnerability, and positivity just keep cycling. And the people that we will be closest to, the people that are going to be at the top of that triangle, because every relationship starts at the bottom of the triangle with low consistency and low vulnerability. And as we move, as we practice those three things over and over and over and over and over, most of our relationships will stay in the bottom third of the triangle, the bottom half of the triangle. Hopefully, some of those relationships, we will keep practicing the highest levels of consistency by building history and commitment and trust with each other. We'll practice the highest levels of vulnerability where we feel like we can talk about anything. We feel like we can cover different subjects. We feel like we can be really honest and be ourselves. And we will practice the highest levels of positivity where we feel truly loved and get expressed and that's expressed easily. And those are the people that are at the top of the triangle that we have intimacy with. And and, um, and that's what most of us are craving and what most of us are, are really lonely for and what most of us don't have. Um, most of us have a lot of people on this triangle, but not enough people at the very top of the triangle. So, so my last question on consistency is, is there a minimum consistency that you need? Or again, is that a perception? It's a great question. So there's so many different studies on this. So one study shows that... Uh, takes 40 to 60 hours. We self-report that it takes 40 to 60 hours to go from strangers to casual friends, 80 to 100 hours to call somebody a friend, and then 200 hours to call somebody a best friend. So when you think about like as we were kids putting in a slumber party, you know, spending all day long with each other, hanging out for hours after school, like it's easy to log those hours, you know, being a week at summer camp. Um, we log those hours. And now if we're just meeting each other for lunch once a month, it's going to be harder to like get to know each other and log those hours. There's other studies that show that like, you're going to feel closer to the people that you're interacting with like weekly. Um, that uh, I saw one study that said the, pe- the people that we report being closest to, you know, we interact with a couple times a week. And those are the people that are kind of like in and out, like know our daily lives. And that leaves us feeling more sustainable. I tend to define consistency as um, 
yes, frequency matters, but there's also a lot of people in our lives that we may have been really frequent with at one time and we may not be as frequent with them now. But to me, that's still consistent. If I still get together with them once a year for girls weekend, if I still talk to them on the phone twice a year, they may not be the people who are going to know my daily life and leave me feeling supported in that way. But we still have a consistency. Like we're still friends and we still have a pattern. We still have a, a, a way of being together. And so I don't think it matters so much about you know, consistency, a certain amount. The question each of us needs to ask though, is, is it consistent enough for you? And if you want that relationship to feel more supportive and then you need to be talking more often, you know? And so it's, uh, it's really more subjective. I think they were the friendships I was thinking about that you might not have seen them for a year, but it feels like you saw them yesterday and it's easy and it's comfortable and you just fit right back in. Yep. Yep. And it's so interesting during this pandemic, Jackie, it's been really fascinating for me because if you had asked me a year ago who some of my closest friends were, I would have listed four women who are, um, who I, we do an annual girls weekend every single year and for 16, 17 years. And I would have told you that I had the highest level of vulnerability, the highest level of positivity. And, and we didn't talk to each other that much throughout the year, but when we'd get together, we would tell each other everything. But what's so interesting about this pandemic is we ended up deciding to get on a Zoom call. And then we were like, well, let's do it again next week and let's do it again next week. And so we've been doing a weekly Zoom call this year. And I cannot even tell you, these are women that I would have told you was highest vulnerability. And yet adding that frequency has just totally changed our relationship because now instead of telling them everything at the end of the year, we're actually living through it with each other. And that leaves you feeling supported in a way that um, just, so so we do have those friends that we can pick up where we left off and where we love them and, and they can be there for us. But one of the, if, if we're feeling lonely for more day-to-day support and more people who actually know what's going on in our lives and our hearts, it's that frequency piece that might need to be picked up where we actually don't have to update each other on a whole month. We can just kind of like be, you know, in each other's lives more frequently. So that can make a big difference, but obviously we can't do that with everyone. So I think it's for each of us to just be assessing our relationships and being, asking ourselves like, do I have the support that I need right now? Yeah. The third one then, Shasta, is the vulnerability. And just to give a definition uh, for listeners, does that mean I have to divulge everything that has happened to me in my life in great detail in order to get for intimacy? (laughs) (laughs) You ask such great questions. No, it does not mean that. It means, can I show up? You know, at a low level of vulnerability, it's can I just show up and be curious about the other person and let myself be seen a little bit and in the appropriate way. Like if this is a book club, can I share my ideas and my opinions and can I practice sharing what I thought about the book? You know, if if it's a mom's group, you know, can I talk? about, yeah, how hard this is and yet how exciting certain moments are. And so whatever the context is, you know, can I practice being seen in that space and in that way? Um, and, and, and I love for me, especially with women, it's not just being vulnerable with what's negative and what's hard. It's almost harder. It's almost more vulnerable to talk about what we love and what we're proud of and what we're celebrating and what's going well. And we want to be seen and need to be seen in those ways too and to celebrate each other. So women are awful. um, They bring each other down more than anyone else. So can we actually celebrate our successes authentically? with each other yeah. and be stoked I, for the other person. That is a really big area for me that I've really committed to. I like when I see all my friends, I'm almost always being like, so tell me something that you're proud of right now. Like tell me something that you're like something you've done. And I don't even have to explain it much anymore. They just kind of know it, but I'm always like, tell me something that a decision you've made recently or a conversation you've had or something you did that like you're just genuinely proud of. Um, or I often, one of my favorite questions with anybody uh, whether it's the girls I talk to weekly or if it's friends I haven't seen in a while, since the last time we connected, share with me one highlight and one low light. Like, tell me something that's like has felt really energizing or really good in your life that you've been happy about, and tell me something that's been stressful or something that's been harder or something, and letting them share what pieces they want to share, you know? And so it's, it's really allowing somebody to just be seen in the ways that they want to be seen. Yes, but into my matters. family, Shasta, I was Would raised I? <laughs> by a psycho- psychologist and social worker and we'd have those dinner table conversations. <laughs> and when any of my sisters or I bring home a new, my husband or a boyfriend or they yes. just get bombarded by these deep <laughs> and meaningful questions and it's shock by fire into the I, conversation. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Question then to me, because I do a lot of work in organizations that's where I spend uh you know when I'm not doing fun things like podcasts that's that's my time and to me your vulnerability sounds the same as psychological safety yes 
Yeah, I love it. Well, psychological safety actually encompasses all three of them, all three of the requirements, because psychological safety is feeling safe to share what I what I what I'm really thinking and feeling, knowing I won't be punished or or with you know in any way uh, for what I felt, and that has that that comes from consistency and positivity and vulnerability. So we want to feel good for having shared, which is positivity. We need to feel safe sharing it. The safety comes from consistency because as we've seen other people share their ideas and not get shot down, uh, we feel safer sharing our ideas. And as we've shared our ideas in the past and we create a culture of that being safe, that's the consistency piece. And so part of it is, is vulnerability. Like I need to share this idea, but it's easier to do that if other, if we could have created a consistency. Yeah. Yeah, And so nobody, nobody just wants to be vulnerable if we think we're going to be judged for it or, or kind of shamed for it. And none of us want to be vulnerable if we aren't really sure how it's, where it's going to be received. And so that consistency is what creates safety and that uh, positivity is what creates us feeling like it's, we're going to be rewarded for it or liked for it, or at least not negatively held. But yeah, that's another great model of almost Almost every positive relationship thing you can look for, you know, I'll start seeing it now. You'll be like positivity, consistency, and vulnerability. Like those three things, like I can guarantee anybody listening, any relationship you've ever built in your life, that has been meaningful. It's because these three things were present, whether you knew it or not. And conversely, any relationship in your life that's not feeling meaningful right now, it's because at least one of these three things is lacking. And you can ask yourself, and that's a great question that all, you know, we had you all stop and think for a second at the beginning of like, if you had to score yourself one to 10, it's a great thing to pause now and ask yourself, like, maybe it's a specific relationship that comes into mind, or maybe just kind of your relationships in general, but like, which one of these three things is hardest for you to do? Or which one of these three things would be the thing that would make your relationships feel more meaningful if you were to Im- increase that one in those relationships? Mm. So if, if our listeners are asking themselves that question, and they identify positivity or uh, consistency or vulnerability as the one that's lagging or the one that needs to be boosted. Have you got your uh, top tips for what do you actually go and do as a grown up, <laughs> where it's harder to potentially make friends? If I'm if I'm wanting to develop and and take action rather than be passive in my friendships, yep. what can I do in those three areas? Yeah. Well, a couple of resources. One, I'll make sure I give you the link to uh, on ShastaNelson.com. There's a friend Missy quiz and you can take this quiz and get a score of how you are in these three areas as a friend. And then no matter what your lowest score is, I'll send you an email that will give you some tangible tips for that area. Um, the other thing is every single one of my books has an entire chapter on every single one of these three things because they're so foundational. So like my latest book talks about how to do these in the workplace. Um, but friend Missy talks about how to do this in those friendships. I would say in general, if I were just trying to be really practical in a few moments is starting with a post-it note, like who are the people you want to prioritize? Like write down their names. And then I would actually, maybe those three to five names. And then I would ask yourself, which one of these three things could be improved in each of those relationships? And so take the time to say, well, with that friend, every time I talk to her, we, it actually feels really good. And we, I feel like we're really honest. So we've got the positivity and the vulnerability, but I don't talk to her very often. So maybe it would be the consistency we could increase. Or with that friend, I talk to her all the time and we're vulnerable. So we're in each other's lives. We've known each other forever, but I don't feel that good when I leave her. Like I'm always drained or exhausted afterwards. So, okay, positivity, you know, so we can kind of start assessing. And then absolutely, if positivity is the one that needs to be raised, the question needs to be like, okay, is there anything we can do here to decrease the negative? Uh, which means, do I need to set boundaries? Do I need to forgive her? Do we need to have a tough conversation? Do I need to, uh, you know, are there things we can do? Um, is one of us in a grief right now that we just need to kind of like make sure that we that we're honoring that, but also stepping out of that for a night and going and doing something fun. Are we caught up in a pattern where it's just whining all the time or complaining all the time? And so like assessing what we can do there. And then we can always, always, always add more positivity. And so we can always say, you know what, this friendship, we need to go do something kind of fun or this friendship, we need to like make sure that while we're complaining, that's great. We also should be, maybe there's a way that we can also say, maybe tonight we should share something we're proud of uh, also, or like uh, make sure we're also practicing gratitude. And so what else can I do to improve? kind of bring some of those positive feelings into this friendship. What I liked in your book from that was you spoke about that positivity is about the give and take, that Mm -hmm. reciprocity. And and that sometimes actually 
it might take some self-reflection and some self-work to improve the friendship. So it might not be actually what you put into the friendship. It might be what you do as homework behind yeah. the scenes, which is, totally. am I worthy of receiving positivity? Am I worthy of receiving love and care? If someone offers it, do I automatically just say, no, I'm fine? Or do I let myself kind of kind of take that on board and take their care and support, et cetera? I love that you're presencing that. Yeah, we, I'm just doing a coaching circle right now with some women around their friendships. And one of them, the, her takeaway last night was thinking about receiving as an act of positivity for that very reason. Because if we are not willing to be, if we're not willing to let our friends give to us, we're we're preventing them from feeling a shot of generosity and we're preventing ourselves from feeling a shot of being supported. And so we're hurting our friendship by being strong basically and acting like we don't need help and saying no when offered. So absolutely an act of positivity can be simply receiving, which is- And I also like in your book, which I'd never seen before, but you list different types of friends because I think that's right. We do have people that bring different things to our life and and you kind of list out all the different roles that friends can take like companions or energizers or mind openers or champions and you know I think that's a good read for people to go what are all the different types of friends you can have and then do I have my bases covered <laughs> or do I yeah. have a whole lot of connectors but no energizers or yeah well, it helps us shift our expectations, right? Too, So we're not so mad at this friend for not being X, Y, Z, because they are so good at helping us brainstorm our life and think through the strategy and like all this, but they may not be the friend who's like, go out and have a fun time necessarily, you know? And so like, it allows us to appreciate what different friends give us without needing any one friend. Back to your earlier point with your husband to expect one person to be everything. Um, when, when, I, when I hear a lot of people resenting a friend for not being enough or for not being there or for not being a good friend, I often, if I start kind of peeling back the layers and asking questions, I, what I often hear is that that person is mad, is expecting one friend to be all their friends. And so they've placed too many expectations on that one relationship. And instead of appreciating what that friend can give, they're focusing on what they're, what, what really they need to go make more friends and uh, get those needs met in other relationships. So that's how we can boost uh, positivity Con- consistency I'm, I'm going to guess you're going to say prioritize and don't try and be consistent with everyone like choose yeah. those three to five people and work on them rather than Absolutely. everyone you've ever got in your life vulnerability Absolutely. is there anything practical that can help people be more vulnerable in relationships Yeah. So I would think that one is one where most of us need to stop and reflect again and ask ourselves, do I have a tendency, if I, if I err on one side, do I undershare or do I overshare? And I think that's a really good awareness to hold is that some of us, we have no problem being vulnerable. We actually need to show up and be more curious and let the other person be more vulnerable. And ask, how can I, (laughs) how can I be a safe person to make sure that, because if I'm the only one walking away feeling seen, this isn't a friendship. It's only a friendship if the other person's walking away feeling seen too. So what can I do to ask more questions or to say, you know, to hold that space. Um, but for some of us, yeah, we've been friends long enough with somebody and we need to ask ourselves, am I, am I opening up and do, can I take up a little bit more space? Um, I know for me, I don't have a problem being vulnerable, but I used to wait until somebody asked me questions. I used to think that I needed to wait until they asked me things. And I learned that one of my areas of growth for being vulnerable was I need to learn to my friend, as long as my friends are open to hearing me and receive me, I just don't need to wait for them to ask. So I'm getting better at when I'm driving to go meet a friend or I'm getting ready to have a phone call. I think to myself for a moment, like, what do I most want to share with Jamie? Like, what's the thing that I want to tell Deneen about? And, and I just kind of stop and think like, what's the thing that if I got off the phone sharing that, like, that's what I want to spend my time talking about. So I show up with more self-awareness so that we don't, we're not at risk of talking about TV shows or like 30 other things that we could go on. So having more self-awareness of what I want to talk about. And then if that friend is a friend that tends to talk more, I need to learn how to show up and be like, hey, before we go, I want to make sure I tell you about this. Or um, I've been so excited to talk to you today because I was wanting to talk to you about X, Y, Z. And so let me just start by talking, you know, and I, and learning to kind of take our own space. Um, Now it's one thing if a friend says, no, I'm sorry, you can't talk. I'm not interested in what you're saying, but that's most every single time our friends like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they want to hear it. And so we don't need to wait for everybody to be quiet and ask us the question. We need to learn to kind of show up and share and share. It's our job to figure out what we want to share. So I think we each each need to kind of look and say, what's my pattern and how can I show up and be seen? And how can I make sure I'm seeing others? That's a perfect segue because the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is 
what happens when we've got crap friendships, when they're toxic, when they're not good? You know, do we just get out of them? Is there hope that they can shift? You know, and I mean, yeah. you, you know, there are lots of different types of unhelpful friendships, but what do we do about them? Yeah, that's like a whole nother podcast. I love it. I know, it. I know. But- <laughs> I've got four minutes. I'm looking at the clock and I know I've got four minutes. I'm oh, no, we're aware. good. No, I, in, a, in a short answer, I would say just as I said earlier that we can, every relationship starts at the bottom of the triangle. And as they practice these three things, they move up the triangle. Uh, when I recognize that a relationship is not, uh, is not vulnerable or is not healthy, vulnerable, or is not positive, or is not, you know, when it feels broken, it's because one of these three things is in lack at least. And so the very first thing I do is say, okay, what can I do to help add that one thing? What can I do to repair this relationship? Understanding that my friends have, you know, we, nobody else, they're not, they don't know what we know about friendship. So, uh, let's be compassionate and generous with people. And then to your point, if we feel like we keep trying to fix that and it's unhealthy and we can't repair it, then the real awesome thing about this triangle is just as people can move up the triangle as we practice the three things, so too can we move people down the triangle. So it allows the opportunity where we don't have to just kick somebody out of our lives. Like, okay, that person didn't keep a confidence, I told them. So I'm not going to practice vulnerability with them, but that doesn't mean they can't be in the bottom half of my triangle. Can our kids still play together? Yes. Can I still see her at a party and not start screaming? Yes. Could I still be a part of like, yes. So it doesn't have to mean all or nothing. It allows for the opportunity to say, I don't trust her to tell my secrets to, but I can still trust her to be an adult in a social setting, you know? And so it allows us to kind of say, then what happens then is I lower my expectations of that. I I no longer... I no longer expect her to be at the top of the triangle. I now think to myself, she's somebody who's in the halfway middle of the triangle. So she can be a part of my social life, but I'm not going to see her as my best friend. And I'm going to keep fostering other relationships that can be those best friends. That and is so very helpful. It helps you, don't have to of, kick, you don't have to kick yeah. someone out of your triangle, but you very can rarely, de- very deprioritize rarely. them. You yeah, can sh- exactly. shift them down. Exactly. Very few of our friends are waking up saying, how can I hurt her today? How can I be malicious? How can I disappoint her? You know, when 84% of us say that we have a toxic friend, a toxic best friend, it shows that we either are all friends with the same 16% of toxic, horrible people, or else it means somebody else thinks that about us. You know, and the point is we all are going to disappoint each other. None of us are perfect. I think it's just recognizing that there's uh, there's an ebb and flow in relationships and we, we can we can allow them to move in and out without having to make it some big breakup all the time. Shasta, it is 10.54. I've got one minute left because I know you have (laughs) to go. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. It's such an interesting conversation. And I suppose my final question for you is out of all the research you've done, the three books you've written, what you've contributed to the world for you, what are you most proud of in the work that Mm. you have done? Oh, look at you. That's a good question of positivity and vulnerability. I am most proud of, you know, honestly, what comes up for me at this moment, and I reserve the right to change my mind a different day, but what comes up for me right now is just that I I saw this need, you know, 12 years ago and just kept calling it out and kept speaking on it. And it felt like back then nobody cared. (laughs) And it felt like back then nobody was talking about loneliness. And back then it felt like, you know, friendship wasn't that popular of a topic. And I think if I'm just proud, it's that I you know, it's not a money-making topic. It's not something that people are used to paying for. I, but I'm, I'm proud that I saw it and I feel so passionate about it that I've just stayed on the journey and it has been rewarding, but I'm proud of myself for like, for caring deeply and just pouring myself into it and studying it and persevering, I guess Mm -hmm. would be my answer. (laughs) Being consistent with it. Yeah. Yeah. Look at you. Look at you. It was such a joy to be interviewed by you. You have such a thoughtful questions. I, I end this podcast wishing I had time now to ask you a 50 questions back. Well, maybe one day Shasta, we can, (laughs) we can swap roles. (laughs) <laughs> that would be super fun. I know it's always the part of podcast that leaves me being like, wait, I, this is still too one-sided for sure. It's but been it a whole one-way share. It has not <laughs> been mutually seen. <laughs> no, I know. I feel so bad about that. <laughs> no, don't. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. And I know everyone will get a huge amount out of what you have been able to share. Oh, thank you. And all of you listening, just huge blessings on you and on your friendships. May you have courage to lean into them and trust that you deserve to be loved. And uh, yeah, be gentle with yourselves. None of us have been taught this. We're all doing the best we can. Yeah. Thanks so much. 
I'm Jackie Maguire, and you've just finished listening to the Frentimacy episode of Mind Brew. I hope you could tell how thoroughly I enjoyed my conversation with the highly knowledgeable Shasta Nelson, not only on an intellectual professional level, but also as a human being wishing to optimise my friendships just as much as you. There were so many nuggets of gold in this episode. The intimacy gap, that whilst we may be superficially connected to more people than ever before, many of us lack depth and intimacy with those connections. That a lack of solid connections leaves us biologically and literally in pain. That that feeling of loneliness needs to be recognised correctly despite the barriers of shame that may pop up for us to help us actively engage in correct connection-seeking behaviour. That intimate friendships are characterised by a base of positivity and equally important elements of consistency and vulnerability. I found it really useful to think of my friendship network within that triangle, that people can move up and down the triangle based on those three elements and that we have an active ability to support friendships to move up and down as appropriate. I also thought that the good old 1 to 10 check-in scales were so helpful in this arena of life too. How satisfied am I in my relationships, 1 to 10? What's my input on all three scales within my friendships, 1 to 10? Who do I want to prioritise in my life? I really encourage you to take the time to complete Shasta's exercise she spoke about in the podcast and look up her free Frentimacy quiz on the website. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Mind Brew and that the information provided adds real meaning to your life. Please share this episode with your network and head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's so very much appreciated. Thank you and have a good day.